Hello, my name is Jason Reichel, and you're listening to Risk Management Brick by Brick. I'm fascinated with people who are helping build and maintain the physical world around us. On each episode of this podcast, we'll dive in with a risk manager, speak to them about how technology plays a role in this process. Next up on Brick by Brick, we sit down with Aaron Fruman. Aaron is the founder of Uncommon Construction. His focus lies in supporting young people through hands-on experience with construction work. His entrepreneurial drive empowers youth and makes careers in construction more accessible to them. This conversation is very inspiring. When I sat down to talk to Aaron about all of this, it made me think, why don't we have more programs like this? So those risk managers out there who want to see people supporting the industry, but also helping the youth, I think this is the episode for you. Let's get to it. Well, Aaron, thank you for joining me at Brick by Brick today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's start with, why are you here at Procore? We're, we're doing a live event here at Procore. So we are obligated to always ask, why are you at the Procore event? Yeah, I'm one, this is my first groundbreak, so I'm pumped to be here with Procore. I lead an organization called Uncommon Construction based in New Orleans, and they're one of our, our corporate partners. They've got a, a strong office in New Orleans. We're happy to use their software and engage with their employees in our organization. But I'm also really here to connect and learn with the industry, learn about different issues that are being talked about in different corners of the industry, and connect with the various people who lead those efforts and confront those challenges every day. And the, be- the more that I and we can learn about those things, the easier we'll be positioned to collaborate with each other. So I think it's in the name, Uncommon Construction, yeah. right? Yeah. But so what is the difference between uncommon and common construction? Yeah, so we're a construction company, but we're a little different, right? So there's a couple of reasons why we landed on the name that are maybe for another podcast, but Uncommon Construction is a nonprofit workforce development organization. We host an apprenticeship program for high school students. So we take young people from different schools and we hire them as W-2 employees. They're paid above minimum wage. They earn internship credit at school for building a house or another project together. And then any revenue that we make from those projects, we use to match their earnings, 50 cents on the dollar, with what we call an equity award scholarship that they can use for their education or career opportunities after they graduate from high school. We're, through one lens, we're just a licensed and insured residential general construction company that has training programs where we can engage upwards of 100 high school students per school year for this meaningful work experience with a lot of on-the-job technical training, culture, character, building activities and evaluations and, and growth opportunities, as well as chances to explore a lot of different corners of the industry and jobs and careers that start on or around a construction site. A lot of people, when they think about construction, high school, internships, those two things aren't, they don't go together. So where did it come from? Like, where's the idea? What's your background? Yeah, well, it comes from the idea exactly that, right? Like, it's if you take a big commercial construction company, it's really hard to make the case to them that they should take on a 16-year-old intern on their job site, right? In a lot of ways, it's safety prohibited and so on, right? So we need, we understand the problem in a lot of different ways, right? There's the obvious workforce need, the industry is clamoring for entry-level employees that they can invest in and keep and retain, right? Yeah, this is one of the biggest, most common things people bring up on the podcast. Biggest risk is trade professionals. Second biggest risk is, and we talked about this a little bit, so I hope you get back into it, about soft skills, Mm -hmm. people actually being reliable. Yeah, so, you know, the construction workforce is aging out. We're retiring. I heard somewhere that the average age of a construction worker, like a job site construction worker, is like 60-something years old. And so we just don't have enough young people raising their hands for these opportunities. And some of that is because 
of the decades-long marketing campaign against manual labor, work smart, not hard, as though you can't do both at the same time, right? right? So we understand that that problem is what the industry is experiencing, and it's existential for the industry. And this is an essential industry that makes up the backbone of the American economy. And we've all got to step up and contribute and evolve in order to resolve that. But the other problems that Uncommon is stacked up against are that young people, students, youth in our communities need more opportunities for real-world work-based learning experiences that actually puts their classroom instruction in context. And our schools and our school systems, public school systems in particular, are less and less positioned to provide that for them. We hear about shop class doesn't exist anymore. We're more teaching to the test and standardizing education. It's a lot less project-based exploration. A lot less apprenticeships. These the apprenticeship things. model has kind of gone by the wayside. And so we need more opportunities for young people to get out into the world. And not only that, to be able to get out in the world in a way that has a practical application, right, for their skills, but also shows them the value of their contributions. So those are some reasons like why at Uncommon our young people are paid, we have a profit-sharing mechanism with our Equity Award Scholarship. And so it becomes a lot more real than some fabricated activity led by the high school gym teacher where you're building a birdhouse maybe right. once every other year, right? You know, and I come to this work, or this work comes to me, I guess. It's been a big part of my personal journey. When I was in high school, it was never a question of whether or not I was going to go to college, just where. So I went to the public university in California that was furthest away from my parents' front door, yeah. right? Yeah. And we didn't really think much of it. And as a result, I didn't really know why I was there. I didn't know why I was going to major in political science or why I was going to do this. Maybe I'd be a lawyer or whatever. And then I dropped out in my third year. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go or, and had lost a sense of who I was in the process. And I, was, I didn't drop out because I had bad grades or because I was going to graduate early. And again, I just was scared. I didn't know what I was going to do. The aimless, the wall in front of you, yeah. right? And so that was January 2005. And then later that year after Hurricane Katrina, I happened to call the Red Cross to make a $25 donation. And it occurred to me to ask the operator how I could do what she was doing. She signed me up for a volunteer shift the next day. And I was a Red Cross volunteer from a couple days after Hurricane Katrina for six, seven, eight months, however long they would keep me. I did a couple field deployments and an extended stay in New Orleans. And I mentioned that usually in conversations like this because that was a really transformational and empowering experience for me. I was, as a 21-year-old recent college dropout, personally responsible for distributing tens of thousands of dollars of product to people who really needed it in a bad way. And nobody ever thought to ask me what paper or credential qualified me to do it. I was just the one working hard, learning quickly. Made a lot of mistakes, right? But that's really important in those early work experiences. So that gave me a lot of confidence. And then I got my first job in construction as the least skilled worker at a day labor company. <laughs> Very long story about how I ended up there, but I fell in love with the mental and physical rigor of a day on a job site. There's more math, reading, social engineering skills on a construction site in one day than most professions experience all year. I was making good money and I was meeting interesting people and it was an incredibly formative experience for me. That kind of tumbled into going back to the Gulf Coast and being part of the rebuilding effort. I got real good at building houses with unskilled labor, realized I had a knack for teaching people, went back to school, got my degree, and then became a classroom teacher. And I taught middle school reading and social studies. But the traditional classroom didn't work for me. And it definitely wasn't working 
the one I was trying to create for my students, right? right? So I just started thinking differently about the walls of a classroom and how we could develop a different relationship with them. And it just occurred to me one day, well, I guess if I'm supposed to do anything, I'd build houses with high school students and use the profits to pay for scholarships for the kids who build the houses. So since saying that, we've been operating nine, 10 years. We've hired over 350 high school students who've collectively earned over $400,000 in pay and scholarships. About 50% of our applicants say that they're industry-bound, but like 80% of our graduates say that they're industry-bound. And that's just self-reporting, right? Because there's still stigma associated with it. So the impact that we're having by creating this authentic work-based learning experience and an alternative learning environment has become really, really powerful. A big part of that is because we're a little uncommon in our approach, right? And you mentioned soft skills. And so we don't do credentials. We don't do the textbook curriculum, right? We leave that to the industry providers who are already really good at doing that. They just don't have enough young people signing up. So we create this like shock and awe, awesome experience where a young person builds a house from start to finish, has some skin in the game from their earnings and scholarship. And we really hang our hard hat, so to speak, on the development and demonstration of soft skills. And these are things that are more universally applicable, but are just really, really observable. Tested on the site. Yeah, like you go through the crucible of our experience, of the experience on a job site, and it what you already have in you, it pulls out and strengthens. So these are things like looking for more work when you're done right? Breaking down problems into manageable parts. They, they correspond under these categories that we assign badges to for your hard hat so that then when our industry partners come out to engage. Like look at the cool shit you did. Look at the cool stuff you've done and they can scan the job site and see levels of achievement and identify who they want to hire, who they want to bring onto their team. Say, hey, when so-and-so is getting ready to graduate, send them over to us. Mm-hmm. And so we're creating these earlier moments and opportunities for the industry as it exists today to connect with, build empathy, build relationships with a younger and more diverse workforce who they desperately need, and then showing that that younger workforce the vast array of lucrative jobs and careers that may or may not require a four-year degree. Yeah, and there's more things in construction than just working on the job site. Totally, right? right? I mean, we're at a construction software company, Right. right, at their conference. And so we may have a kid who's super, a young person who's super interested in coding and whatever, and they're going to be that much better working at a company like Procore because they have spent three semesters at Uncommon when they were in high school. Right, and they know and understand what they're providing. They understand for. their users, right, to use the tech language. Walk me through, what is the transformational experience that the youth seem to get out of this? Do most of them report a positive experience? Oh, dude. I mean, like, even if you've had a bad experience, right, we know that it was hard and I was so tired. and I. But I, I don't just, even know what it's like to build a thing that— Oh, you got to come out. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a tech guy, right? Like, I built stuff, but it's not— Well, let me ask you this. Like, who built your desk, right? You bought a desk probably on the internet. Yeah, right. Who put it together for uh, you? I mean, I guess I did, yeah. yeah. So, like, what did that feel like when you did that? Good to be done. And you use that desk every day, right? Right, yeah. So you did something that was hard, that was foreign and different for yeah. you, and now it's something that you benefit from every day. You experience the benefit of this product that you built, yeah. basically, right? You assembled it. So just extrapolate that out, right? You're a grown-up. And you may, that's maybe not the first one that you've done before, but, yeah. and it's a small scale project. So now think about an alumni like one at our organization named Hunter, who was in our founding class of apprentices. And so has been where we like mirror that tech ethos of like 
lean startup. So every semester is an iteration and we're evolving and changing and all that stuff just within our program. And that's helped us be innovative and be more responsive with our users, problem solution alignment, stakeholders, and so on. But so take Hunter, who graduated high school, having built six houses. And those houses have people living in them. And not only that, those people who are living in those houses, that's the biggest expense, like purchase that they've made, maybe with the exception of their four-year college degree. Right. And they made that quarter of a million dollar purchase as an investment in Hunter and his experience, right? So Hunter did that six times by the time he graduated high school. He accrued some scholarship dollars that he took to the electrical union and paid his union dues to join the union. And he became a homeowner at 20, Mm -hmm. right? And now he's on our board of directors. So Hunter has that experience that he carries with him at 25, I think is how old he is. Has that experience that he carries with him, the sense of unparalleled sense of achievement. A sense of a legacy that a lot of young people don't even get now to know that they've contributed to their environment and made it better. Yeah, we talk a lot like in education circles about the achievement gap. And we talk a lot in workforce circles and in our industry about the skills gap. What doesn't always get as much airtime is what we call the belief gap. And this is the gap between what young people are capable of and what others believe they can achieve. So in New Orleans, Uncommon Construction has built like 15 houses and all the neighborhood and community around us has seen all of those apprentices build those houses. So there's a transformational perspective mindset shift around what young people are capable of, which they then internalize to inform what they believe about themselves, right? From And about the industry and the value that young people can bring to the industry and the value that the industry can offer to those young people. And this transformational mindset shift like exists in an hour on a job site when you finally learn how not to bend a nail or strip a screw all the way to when you're putting the final punch list touches on a house before it's listed for sale, right? And then that legacy, right? That's a 30-year mortgage. And so it's going to be here for a long time. And think about that experience that you had with your desk and put an exponent on it, right? right? And then earlier, this young person's carrying that with them along with the social and professional network, the financial resources, the resume experience that they can also carry with them into whatever their next opportunity. I was reading this study that was saying like, in the 1970s, something like 80% of youth had had a a, jo- a labor job mm-hmm. when they were in high school or very early, like the, going into college yep. or whatever they're going to do. And now something like only 10% have yep. that experience. But it's all been produced to service where they're producing, they're assembling the good, not mm-hmm. producing anything. Yeah, and there's lower opportunity. There's fewer opportunities for upward mobility in the service industry in restaurants and hotels and hospitality. And you're totally right. I mean, it used to be that the construction industry and the hospitality industry train the workforce. So you learn all these transferable soft skills, these durable skills that you can then carry with you. Our district attorney in New Orleans put himself through college and law school painting houses. Yeah, right. He has a different appreciation for the trades, but you know, that's, he went on to do something different. And as college came to the forefront and that all of that kind of came about. And I think it's interconnected with a lot of the power dynamics and systems of control and oppression. We can't help but but acknowledge that yeah. as being institutionalized in our industry and, and American economy and society. But, you know, that's kind of fallen by the wayside. 
in terms of like, especially in areas like New Orleans where they're trying to rebuild something after such a yeah. I mean, we have an aging happening. infrastructure, right? And it's an existential crisis, not just for the industry, but for to sustain our community in our geographic location. I read we lose a football field of soil on the Louisiana coastline every 40 minutes. And that's like, and you can extrapolate that out from there, right? And so the biggest jobs need in confronting that challenge of coastal restoration and protection starts with carpentry and construction. It's building levees, it's elevating houses, it's designing water systems. It's these, and it's the same transferable technical and soft skills, you know, to clear out our drainage and filtration systems, right? As it is to, you know, load a trailer on a truck to go to a job site. Let me ask you a question, not just about your thing, but with your experience of working with teenagers. So a lot of people on the podcast have kids or they are just, let's say, not so stoked about this generation. What are people getting right and what are people getting wrong about this generation? Yeah, it's like the whole Gen Z thing. Yeah. I think one thing that I hear a lot from other people is like, they don't want to work, right? And I think there's one that there's a lot of coded language in there. I think what, at least with the young people that we work with and, and we see the most, it's just that they lack opportunities to, to get out there and do it. Our young people will hustle. Mm. They'll get themselves to and from work. It's sometimes there are factors outside their control that don't, that make it harder for them to get where they need to go. I think one of the things you're getting at is like this sense of entitlement in like, Gen Z. Yeah, what, I mean, because I have a belief that we were all like that, right? And then getting opportunity and being put into environments humbles you and motivates you. I remember being in my high school and someone asking what I want to do for college, and I didn't even know the job that I ended up going to school for existed, right? Yeah. It wasn't anything that I was really aware of or how I could even get there. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what it boils down to is awareness and exposure, right? If you had asked me when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, what I wanted to be grow up, what I wanted to be when I grew up, I'd say I want to be a doctor. Well, my dad's a doctor. I ended up being a teacher for a couple of years. My mom's a teacher. You know what your closest exposure is. And I think, you know, in some ways, the upcoming generation gets a bad rap, right? From some, a few of the bad apples who have that loud entitlement culture and so on. I think there's something awesome too about what the next generation is going to demand and expect from their future employers. And I do think like it's not enough necessarily for the construction industry to just say, we've got a job for anyone who wants it, right? But we also have to make those jobs attractive and we have to make those jobs sustainable and be able to work for the lives that people want to have. I heard an anecdote from a woman leader in construction, one of our construction partners, who they didn't even realize, this is a woman-owned and led company, that some of their HR employment practices for job site employees are prohibitive. So when they look at their, for women, right? And that there's no, the, just the structure of being an hourly employee, which is what you have to be on a job site at a lot of companies, doesn't have access to the level of benefits that would make it possible to have maternity leave. So when right. you walk around a job site and you don't see a whole lot of women, oftentimes it's because they have to do more thinking about their family planning and what job they're going into and whether it's office versus field environment. And that leads to pervasive cultures of misogyny and so on that also gives construction a bad rap. And some of these things are true, right? And some of them aren't. And some of them are earned and some of them are unearned. I'm an example of this, right? When I was a kid in Southern California, there was a housing boom. And I used to like burst out my parents' back door to go climb around on tractors and swing through the framing of houses that were under construction. But nobody would have ever thought to suggest to me, hey, you might pursue a career in construction if you like doing that. I had to drop out, go to a day labor company, buck against the system, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
And I'm a dad. I have an almost two-year-old daughter. And she's fascinated by trucks. Right. Yep. Right? She's Mine like an eight-year-old that was totally face up against the window and she sees a track. Like she's fascinated by it. And at some point, our culture will admonish her for that curiosity and will implicitly or explicitly teach her that she should see herself somewhere else. Well, where is that spark else? ever going to be in their day-to-day life going to be sparked again? Right. So that interest just becomes something that passes. Yeah, so I think I kind of beat the drum of awareness and exposure, and we can't fake it with young people. You know, when we take our young people in our program and we ask them in their interview, what do you like doing? Like, It's like, oh, I like playing games, like video games, or I like doing this, or I like Hang out with hanging with my friends and that kind of thing. But sometimes, like, the limitations in those responses is just because we haven't, given them opportunities to get exposure to other stuff. Yeah. So you don't know how good it can feel to work outside and sweat. And like, it's a, you can't be on your phone because it's a safety issue. And so we all just have to be here together right now doing this hard thing. And afterwards, we're going to look at it and be like, look at that desk, look at that house that we just built. Is the framework that you built, is it something that you see moving past just your group? Is it something that you're helping other cities and other people set up or what's a long-term plan? Yeah, we're in an exciting moment of growth as an organization. You know, we launched in New Orleans. We've been operating there. We're entering our ninth school year. It's been very iterative. We're really proud of our impact and the innovative model that we've developed, both like business model from recycling earned revenue and working capital. As a nonprofit, we're like 60 to 70% sustained by earned revenue, which is like wild. So we take your dollar a little bit further when you donate to Uncommon Construction because we earn it back and reinvest it in our young people. But as well as like the program design, right? Dispensing with credentials in favor of soft skills. And so we're really excited about that. So we're currently in a moment where we're growing and expanding and evolving again, deepening our impact in New Orleans. I'm excited that we are opening the Uncommon Campus. So we're seeking sponsors, supporters, contributors, champions to help us establish our Uncommon Campus as the symbolic and operational headquarters of our organization as we grow. About a year and a half ago, we launched in our first new city. So we have programming operating in Minneapolis. We're taking the Mississippi River from both ends. Super, super exciting. We get inquiries almost monthly from a teacher, a construction leader, a potential funder, whomever, or some combination of those things in cities across the country who would like to see something like Uncommon exist in their community because it's different than an extended volunteer shift at Habitat, right? It's, there's more accountability to a job. Yeah, more, it's a job. And it's integrated. We're sort of system adjacent with your school. And there's a lot of kind of like nails that we hit on the head. And so we're exploring what that looks like to really scale and grow. And we think about our biggest vision as we build to scale our organization means that every job site, everywhere, has someone on it or connected to it who's engaged with our program, either as a youth apprentice participant or as an industry partner. When we think about that dual-facing mission of the direct impact that we have not only on the young people in all the ways I described before, but also on our various industry partners and their employees and giving them opportunities to share their knowledge and employment and company culture and so on, that that could really lead to a transformational impact at a much bigger scale, right? And so we're really excited about that. We want to walk before we run. We really believed it, have believed over the years of like, let's build a model, an organization that is impactful, is unique, is different, and can really pave a new new road for workforce development in our our industry. And we're excited to be at that moment where we're on the cusp of learning to grow. Yeah. So 
one of the things we focus on a lot is risk managers. How does risk management play a role in uncommon construction? Risk management is central, right? I mean, construction work is risky work and employing miners to do construction work is risky work. That's a reason why all of our high school students, all of our apprentices are W-2 employees covered by our workers' comp. We have restricted activities. We follow all OSHA requirements and so on on our job sites. It really comes down to, in a lot of ways, being a values-driven organization. Is that the power of you being a nonprofit is that you can more drive your organization by values versus... Yeah, I mean, I, I would challenge, I think... Because could Uncommon Construction be a pro-profit yeah, yeah, company? It is not profitable to hire 20 high school students every semester to build a house and provide their transportation and, and get them work uniforms and steel toe boots and tool belts. You know, that is not a profitable enter- endeavor. And so because we're a nonprofit, we have a different bottom line. And so we can take an extra moment here and there When we think about the way we engage with industry, we have a lot of great opportunities to bring the industry in to create these meaningful intersections. And one of the things that we do as a value proposition to the industry is to mitigate risk. There are not great job site opportunities at a typical commercial construction company for a 16-year-old. And if you could imagine if something goes haywire on a big commercial construction site, and if there are 16-year-old interns walking around out there, like, That's terrible, right? And so we offer a lower risk environment as just a residential single story house construction site. So it's lower risk and it's a little bit easier for us to be the employer of record. We retain site control. So we purchase the vacant lot, we file the building permit, we purchase the materials, we sell the house. That allows us to adhere a little more to our North Star and our values. But I would say a for-profit company would be better served by being a values-driven organization. And we really lean on our values when it comes time to make decisions or steer ourselves in one direction or another. Our values, the first one is safety. Safety, grit, integrity, and equity. And all these interplay on each other, and they all have a very tangible as well as a character component. When we think about safety, it's both the physical safety, wearing hard hats and ladder safety and, and all and staying hydrated and those cell phones and all that stuff, as well as the feeling of trust and inclusivity that we can create on our team. So as a nonprofit, we can take a couple steps back to create a different kind of environment than you might experience on another job site where there's a harder bottom line for their profit margin. Yeah, right. right? You're controlling more of that ecosystem. Right, and so we can create a slightly more intentional environment that does mitigate risk for those partners and reduces their exposure while increasing the opportunities for them to engage in ways that have a higher return to them, right, and their interests. So whether it's corporate social responsibility, team building and culture for their staff, finding their incoming workforce, whatever it might be, we can sort of find aligned activities. You know, here's an example. We do partner build days and we pair those with a field trip experience. So we don't go to on a field trip with our apprentices to a commercial construction site in the middle of the workday. It happens after school. And that's by virtue of our program design is that our young people are in school during the week and they work with us on a Saturday as their workday, right? And so when we go to a commercial construction site for a field trip and to engage with their employees and for a tour of that phase of development on the job site, 
We're doing it after everything's gone to bed. So it's not an active construction site. And so there's just some structural things that we can do on the management side, on the scheduling side, to lower the risk for those partners and make sure that we get a high impact from those engagement opportunities when they happen through the mechanism of our programming. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Aaron. It was, this is by far one of the most fascinating conversations I've had <laughs> over, nice. over the last two days. I think what you're doing is really amazing. It solves a lot of the core problems of exposure in this industry. It also brings back, I think, what my father's a longshoreman, like oh, yeah. apprenticeship, passing this down, teaching people self-worth. So it's just an amazing program. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really yeah, appreciate absolutely. it. It's my pleasure to welcome Jennifer Dewey to Brick by Brick. Jennifer is the president of the Maryland Center for Construction, Education, and Innovation. Her focus lies in developing the construction workforce, especially on women in underrepresented groups. Very inspiring. Another one that I walked away from going, we need more people like this in the world. Let's get to it. Jennifer, thank you for joining me on Brick by Brick. It's really wonderful to have you here. Thanks for having me. So when we're talking about the industry, you know, your name came up, you did a panel here at Procore, but what is your background? How did you end up where you're at and where are you now for the audience? So I'm currently the president of the Maryland Center for Construction, Education, and Innovation, or a nonprofit workforce intermediary with a mission to get diverse populations to careers in construction, which is interesting because I never actually thought I'd be in the construction industry. I had a major in communications and a minor in sociology. I thought I'd be like mad men working on uh, Madison Avenue or something, doing ads for like Nike or something. And uh, I couldn't get a job in advertising out of school. So I started working for Whiting Turner in marketing. And it was shortly thereafter that I realized that I could probably do, do construction for a living, but nobody had ever talked to me about that. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. I guarantee there was not a single girl counseled to enter the construction industry, let alone like engineering or anything like that. So I did about a week of project engineers training to be a better marketer, and I sat in there realizing I actually could do construction for a living rather than just market about it. So I spent about six years in project management for another construction management firm, and then went back to marketing. While this is happening, I joined the National Association of Women in Construction and became really passionate about the idea of women in the industry, women not realizing the industry exists, realizing that they can be in the industry, and always kind of felt like if I could do NEWIC for a living, you know, if I could evangelize the construction industry to women, that I could. And I got this opportunity in 2020 to take over for the then president of MCCI when he was retiring. And it's been a blast since then. I've utilized all the connections that I've had being in marketing and business development for the construction industry and now using it to build a better industry rather than just build better projects. I think that brings up the big question and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, which is why aren't there more women in diversity in construction? What's the core problem and how do we overcome that? So I think, honestly, that our workforce problem in construction stems back to the image of the industry. And half of it is stereotype, right? People not realizing the only interaction they have with the construction workers are driving down the street and seeing, sitting in, you know, road construction, or when they maybe have somebody come to their house and have like a plumber come by to fix yeah. a, a toilet or something like that. And we all know that construction industry is so much greater than just those two things. And the opportunities are so vast. So people just don't know education so the lack of education in there, even in schools, we're teaching residential construction 
in a high school. We're not teaching commercial. Right. And I don't want to knock residential because it is essential, but it's not as cool or as diverse of an industry as commercial construction. And that's where our, I think our big chance, if we teach commercial construction to kids, yes, some of them will go into residential, but vice versa is not happening. Yeah, when you're in commercial construction, it, some commercial construction companies are as big as corporations that we all know, exactly. right? And there's diversity across all of those jobs, from office jobs all the way down to field-level jobs or engineering jobs. Yeah, you can literally do anything for a job that you want to in the construction industry, and people don't realize that. You can be in IT marketing, you can be in accounting, but also you could be, you know, a laborer, you could be an electrician, you could do robotics, like you can do absolutely anything in construction. So I think that's a message that is missing. But then the other part of our image is reality. We are not a diverse industry. We are an industry that prides itself on being hard to work in. It doesn't have to be hard to work in. So I think there's an onus on us as an industry to realizing that we need to change if we really want to capture Gen Z, if we want to capture women and other underrepresented populations, because there's no reason why we still need to be doing business the way we've been doing it for like two millennia. Yeah, let's talk about the reality and, and talk about why organizations should face, I don't know, what might be in today's time a hard reality to face, right? Everyone that I talk to on the podcast, CEOs of construction companies, risk managers are all talking about a lack of talent in the pool. And in a lot of ways, we are to be blamed for that re reputation of having lack of not being involved in education, not being at career fairs, not being at all these elements that draw younger people into it. Not only talking about diverse people, just talking about yes. young people in general, right? And then on top of that, we're sometimes not sending people out who represent the people, and uh, women and minorities and other things like that within our ecosystem. How do you want the industry to respond to that? What is the right actions to be taking? I mean, there's lots of different things you can do. One, like you're saying, is showing up to a career fair and making sure that you show up with something really cool and engaging. Don't just come up with a booth that with some candy on it and a hard hat and a couple old white men standing at the booth. Yeah. I mean, not to knock old white men. I, my father, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I spent my career and not to knock hard it. candy either. Exactly, no. But, I mean, we have such cool stuff. And if you go to this trade show here, you see the expo, you see people with VR headsets, they have really cool interactive things. Bring that to schools. That's what's going to attract kids and their parents, yeah. too, because that's we have to sell it to parents as well. So I think that's important. And then make sure that you've got, you know, your diverse probably obviously can't have diverse people at your trade show booth if you, you don't, don't have, have them. them. You have to be intentional. And be honest, too, be honest. I think, right? Yeah. Be honest and have a dialogue that, like, hey, we would love more people like you. We don't have people exactly. like Exactly. What's that going to be like? I mean, yeah, I'm come from the tech industry, similar issues. And sometimes, you know, you have to call out, I mean, you probably face this in your career, the tokenization of these people as well. So it's a hard thing to make that transition and also not make it a cringy, I guess, is for lack of a better word. What have you been seeing that works with you really getting people interested in this industry? So something, so I'm from Baltimore. And um, when I was president of our local NAWIC chapter, so National Association for Women in Construction, uh, we founded our a local camp for middle and high school girls. We've just finished our eighth year of camp. And we usually only have about 25 girls in camp purely because of our space limitations. And it's completely volunteer run. But it's been amazing. We've had 
girls coming back year after year, bringing their friends. And it's been super awesome to see the industry really involved and they get really excited to bring not just their women there, but the guys get really excited too, meeting these young girls. And it's really cool to see that, yeah, maybe these girls still aren't 100% convinced that they can join the construction industry, but their minds, they now know it's open to them. So those types of things, like getting involved in your local schools, going to a career fair, speaking actually to a classroom and bringing some really cool stuff, making it not just this boring thing. I think that's, that's the important part of educating the minds of the industry uh, or the kids. We have a, um, a guest speaking program in which a teacher can come to us and say, hey, I've got a classroom full of young Black girls that really want to be architects. So I'm going to reach out and find a Black woman architect to come talk to them so they can relate to her, see themselves, and see the possibility of success. Yeah. I mean, I remember being a kid in high school and not even knowing that some of the jobs that I do now were even available to me. Exactly. I grew up in Seattle in a blue-collar area. My dad was a longshoreman. It was like those were the steps that you would take, and I only because I could see them. So I think that visibility is very important to helping helping with the issue. And then also passionate about trying to figure out ways that this industry can bring people in and adapt and change so that everyone can feel the pride of building something for generations past where they are in time. I think that's one of the unsung heroes of our industry is that it's actually something that's very physical. Building the built world is contributing to society in major ways. Yeah, and I think one thing I've heard people from the industry say the, re- the, the pride they feel in building, which is important, but I also think it's the fact that we're changing the world. And younger generation, Gen Z, women, minorities, like stats show, they care about the impact they're making in, with their job and their lives. And you literally can't impact the world more than you yeah. can in the construction industry. Doctors can't save lives if there isn't a hospital to save them in. Teachers can't teach people if there's not a like nothing happens in, we wouldn't be here today if right. it wasn't for the built environment. So I think that message needs to get out there and like loud and proud that we are literally building the world. We're making a difference every day. And I think that's super important for young people to realize. I was uh, reading an article, I think it was in the New York Times, and they were talking about there's a deficit in our culture today about affecting our proximity. Because of the internet and because of culture, we're all, we're, we're tied together, but we're not tied to our local environment, right? right? And I think that the construction industry is an interesting way to see proximity in effect for people. So even those girls in camp, seeing how this all works and then understanding when they're driving past a construction site, what's going on and all of that kind of leads to a a better sense of community. Yeah, so we have a brand called Build Your Path that was brought in as a career guidebook to talk about careers in the industry. And then we started videos about those that we put on YouTube about the industry. And then very recently, we started, we switched them to not just talk about, I want to be an electrician, and this is, you know, what I do for a living, and this is how much money I make, and this is how I had to become one. Now, we, our most recent one that just launched was about capital project management. What the heck is that? Kids have no idea what a capital project manager was. But we didn't really talk too much about the job the day-to-day of it, we talked about the impact that capital project management has by going to one of their clients that it's a school for kids with trauma. And we talked about the impact that the projects are going to have on the students, on the local community. We had a delegate come and talk about, like, that was, it was a really cool, like, yeah, this is one project, one part of Baltimore City, 
but this is the ripple effect this project's going to have. And I think that's the cool part, like what you're saying, the local connectivity that people don't realize. Yeah, and I think that's amazing. One thing I noticed is that you just received a big grant for your program. Yeah. We were mentioning talking about it before the show. What is that about and what are you, how are you going to put that to work? Yeah, so in Maryland, there was legislation passed a couple years ago, uh, years ago called the Blueprint for Maryland's Future. And it's talking about revamping our education system and making it a place where every Marylander can thrive. And pillar three is a career and college readiness. And part of that is, says that by 2030, 45% of Maryland high schoolers will have gotten an industry-recognized credential or a registered youth apprenticeship. Right now, we're at 1%. We have 600 kids a year, which is still a huge number of yeah. kids that are doing apprenticeships. And they're in all kinds of industries. I think about 15, 16% of them are in construction because, you know, we're an industry that already has embraced the idea of apprenticeship. We, in fact, in Maryland and probably in the entire United States, the majority of apprentices are in the construction industry. So what my organization, we partnered with a couple others to create the Maryland Apprenticeship Connector. And we got a $3 million grant to, to help create an infrastructure to scale up apprenticeship in Maryland. Really excited about it. We have just about a year to do all this work in, wow. which is terrifying, but also really exciting. We have a lot of really great momentum and um, support from the Department of Labor all of the different higher education institutions and industry. But the only way we are going to get to the numbers that we need to get to is by industry realizing that they have to hire high schoolers. And I, we talked about this yesterday in my breakout session. We absolutely can hire somebody under the age of 18. It's happening every day. They work already. They have jobs, you know, in restaurants and babysitting and lifeguarding. And a lot of people say, well, I can't legally which is not true. In Maryland, at least, and I'm sure in other states, because I know other states have youth apprenticeship, there's like an OSHA student learner agreement that says, as long as this person is being mentored in a one-to-one -one ratio, they're being supervised. It's not like you're sending them off to, you know, go, you know, yeah, run. Do a jackhammer on Exactly, yeah. by themselves. And they're learning. And I think that's what's really important. And I know some people are nervous about the kids possibly leaving school early, but most seniors have completed all of their requirements to graduate. They only have a math and English that's left to do. Why not put them to work actually creating a career rather than just making a paycheck at Chick-fil-A? Yeah, right. I read, I can't remember the source, but I read that having like a real, real non-service job yep. is one of the leading indicators if someone's going to make it through college or make their even monetary aspirations mm -hmm. as an adult because it teaches us very young a lot of the habits that are needed to complete work while, I mean, I'm not knocking schools or doing their best, while schools have transitioned to trying to educate as widely as possible, yeah. we still require some level of specialization, some level of focus on, our, on a particular thing, which a lot of these apprenticeships give in, in areas. Absolutely, and apprenticeships can run the gamut. The largest apprenticeship provider in Maryland is the NSA. I mean, that is not a blue-collar job by any means. Right. It is a technical, specialized, high-security position. So an apprenticeship can be completely. And if the NSA can figure out how to hire somebody under the 18, you're telling me a construction company can't? Like, that's absolutely insane. Uh, one last question. If you were going to give yourself all those years ago a piece of advice, and I, you probably have to do this quite a bit, so most people will get nervous at this question. What kind of advice would you give 
to a young person? I think it would just be like stretch yourself, follow your heart and don't ever think that you can't do something because every time I've been terrified to make a change, it's worked out for the best for me. I'm just like, have take that leap of faith and try something that you never would have imagined yourself doing. Thank you very much. So you mentioned the issue because I do have people on the podcast and we've talked about apprenticeships and those apprenticeships have mostly been like, well, we would love to do this, but we're worried about safety. We're worried about X. Is that you know, our audience is a lot of risk managers. Is that an, a cop-out? And how could they, who should they check with to see if that is actually real? Because I know that a lot of risk managers are really passionate about getting people into their organization. Absolutely. I mean, I completely understand the nervousness and the fear. And for a very long time, we said, well, our insurance company won't allow it. And we've had those conversations in Maryland. Um, in fact, one of our senators, Jim Rosapep, said, I'm going to make sure that the insurance commissioner talks to all the insurance companies because it's not true. So like I said, there's, it's called, in Maryland, it's called the Most Student Learner Agreement. And it is a document, it's an agreement between the student, the apprentice, and the employer that says they're going to be overseen 100%. And that's what an apprenticeship is. Even as an adult, the adult doesn't know enough to work right. unsupervised. And so a student certainly doesn't. And the I think the really cool part about the one in Maryland is that this is through a school system, right? They're getting credit to graduate. They're not just coming there just because they want a paycheck. It's a very motivated student that gets there. Right. So these kids are getting up at four o'clock in the morning to get to a job site and then going to school afterwards. If that doesn't give you like the- Yeah, the, the grit. Right, what would? So I don't think, I think we're obviously a very conservative industry, rightfully so. People's lives are at stake by what we're doing. It's happening. There's, like I said, I think right now there's 36 electrical apprentices in just one program right now in Maryland. And yeah. if electricity is one of the most dangerous yeah. out there, if they can be overseen, really anybody. I else think can. it's also the the wording. Like, there's a difference between an apprentice and an intern. Absolutely. Right. Yes. And an apprentice is you have to step into that. So if you're a risk manager, going, oh, I've never actually looked at what the rules are around an apprenticeship. Maybe start there. And then also realize that you're going to have to make a commitment to this program for the longevity of the industry. And it's important that you as a risk manager talk about the risk of not doing that. Yes. If we don't make this now, then five years from now, who's going to be XYZ in the field, right? Or it's going to be much harder for us Absolutely. to recruit these college students because other people are becoming apprentices and getting their name recognized with growing this talent. Absolutely. So like you said, an apprentice, the difference between an apprentice and an intern is that there is curriculum that's happening co like at the exact same time as they're working. So they're yeah. not an uneducated workforce. And then additionally, like you said, if everybody else is hiring, other industries are getting them and they are, we'd be missing the boat to not try and hire them too. Thanks. Risk Management Brick by Brick is brought to you by TrustLayer. Find out how TrustLayer manages risk so that the people can build the physical world around us. Head over to TrustLayer.io. And then make sure to subscribe to Risk Management Brick by Brick on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the TrustLayer team, thank you for listening. <laughs>